Amen. That's a big commitment. I mean, you think about the words of that, the chorus to that song. That's that's huge. I will go where you go. I will stay where you stay. I will serve as you serve. I will love as you love. That that's huge. That's, that's those are big words. And the reality is, is that I think the intention of our heart, that, that the people sitting in this room, as I know you, I believe the intention of your heart is, yes, that's what I want for my life. I want to live that successful Christian life. I want this life to be that. I want those words to define who I am. The last week as we came together, it, you know, I, I dealt with a passage, a, a verse that specifically calls us to a responsibility to choose the right things, to do the right thing, to live in a right way. We've talked about freedom for several weeks in, in Galatians 5. And the thing about freedom is, is we love to talk about freedom, but we always have to come to a place where we qualify it. We have to come to a place where we define really and explicitly that freedom isn't about us just getting to be our own master. And so really I believe that's why Paul came to verse 13 in Galatians 5 and he says, you're free, you've been called to freedom, but don't give yourself an opportunity for the flesh because he recognizes what we tend to do in ourselves. We hear freedom and all of a sudden we kind of get to do what we want, we kind of get to be who we want, we kind of get to live how we want. And he says, but wait a second. This isn't about you, and it really brings us to a place that we begin to understand that as free Christians, we are not free to be our own gods, but true, real biblical Christian freedom is about being bound to Christ, being identified in Him, Him being our Lord, our Master. God is sovereign over us, and so true freedom comes when we live under the right authority under God's authority. That's freedom. That's a real definition of Christian freedom, and that's really what we've dealt with over the last several weeks. But here's the tension. Here's the problem. This verse, the, the, the verse that I preached from last week and verses that I've preached from in previous weeks, for example, let me, just, let me just give you this one. When I come to a passage and I preach about circumcision not mattering or uncircumcision and define it as your good works will never make you good enough, so you've got to trust God, but your bad works will never make you bad enough for Him to love you and to save you. So you still have to trust God. Our flesh, in a way, will want to twist that and say, well, you know what, I can sin because God's always going to love me. And I can, I can do this and I don't really have to struggle against it. I don't have to fight against it. And so I can kind of do what I want and God's still going to love me. I can't not make Him, I can't make Him not love me, so He's always going to love me. So I get to do what I want to do and He's still going to love me. That's, that's the way our flesh lives. That's, that's who we are in our old nature. But on the other side of that, when we begin to be talked to about the responsibility we still have to live in a way that honors God, this is what our flesh does. I gotta try harder. I gotta work harder. I gotta do more. I gotta be better. I gotta work it out. I gotta make sure that I'm doing everything right. And so we swing between these two ideas. We bounce off of them all the time. Because in one moment, in the passage we read, it sounds like, oh, you're loved no matter what you do. But on the other end of that spectrum, it sounds like, well, you've got to be good. So we, oh, man, I've got to be good now. Oh, 
I, I get to do what I want because I'm free. Oh, I've got to be good. How? If Christian freedom is really living under God's authority but not moving to legalism, and if Christian freedom is really freedom but it, it, it's putting us under the proper authority, how in the world does this work? How can we live? I mean, you see the dilemma. You see the problem. The beauty of Galatians 5 is that as Paul talks about freedom and as he demonstrates that there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation, he, through the gospel, demonstrates that we have to believe in Jesus. Jesus Christ did the work. But then he turns and he says, but you got to be good. Thankfully, in Galatians 5, he didn't leave us hanging thinking, how, to, how, how do we do this? But really, the rest of the chapter is a how-to. It's a doctrine or a teaching on how it is that we're to successfully live a Christian life and live in Christian freedom and how this works out. It's, it's beautiful, really, when you begin to think about it. And, and actually, we're going to answer three questions today, three how questions. How can we successfully live in biblical Christian freedom? How can we do that and not be bouncing constantly between legalism and license? Legalism is, um, <clears throat> i got to be a good person so that God will continue to love me. License is, God will love me no matter what, so I just do whatever I feel like. How do we, how, how do we live in Christian freedom that stands us in the middle, actually puts us on a whole other spectrum, but the reality is in this example... It puts us in the middle where we're not bouncing between the two and we're trusting in Christ, but we're living in a way that honors Christ. How can we do that? How can we successfully live in biblical Christian freedom? How is this different from life as we know it outside of Christ? And how will we know if it's working or not? So we're just going to jump into the passage and we're going to seek to answer those questions. Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. We read this last week, but we need to pick up here just for context, and actually it builds part of the message. We'll, just, we'll make it through verse 25 today, I hope. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And in those three verses, we find our two, the first two questions answered. But we have to kind of understand what he's saying so that we can see it. And, and you'll understand, I think, as we go along. In verse 16, he starts out by giving us the secret to living in, Christ, in Christian freedom. This is kind of like that secret spice. You know, the, everybody got, they, they got these recipes for chili, and my chili's better than somebody else's chili, and it's all because of my secret ingredient. We've been watching a little bit of Cake Boss on TV, and the Cake Boss, every now and then he'll make the cameras cut away because he's got this secret ingredient that makes his cake better than somebody. I, you know, whatever. It's cake. You know, it's all going to be good, I think. But the reality is I've got this secret ingredient. The difference here is, is that God wants you to know this secret ingredient, and that's why he told Paul to write this down. And that secret is this. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the flesh. How do I, how do I walk, or how do I, how do I live in Christian freedom? How do I live successfully as a Christian? How do I live in such a way that I'm not bouncing between legalism and license? He says, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the flesh. Let's start to break this apart a little bit and try to understand exactly what he means. He says, walk by the Spirit. It's the first part of the phrase. That is all about influence. Now, a few weeks ago, I talked to you about being tripped up and being bound and caught up under the wrong influence. He's saying walk under the right influence. Walk under the Spirit of God's influence. Here's the truth for believers. As believers in Jesus Christ, as people who have been changed and who are no longer slaves but are called sons, as those people, we not only have a new identity, and we have a new nature that's been given to us, and we have righteousness that's been given to us, but even beyond that, we have the Spirit of God who indwells us and comes in and lives in us. And so all of a sudden, not only are you on this walk by yourself, but you are faced, I mean, not, not, not faced, I'm sorry, you are, are living in and around and empowered and infilled by God Himself. He says, walk by the Spirit. So somehow, somehow he, he says, you have to learn to begin to pay attention and listen to the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. He lives in you. He's with you. And, and here's the problem is that all too often in our culture, in our church culture today, is that we want to downplay the part that the Spirit plays in our lives. And I think that this is why we as Christians stumble and struggle so much. Because we don't want to live by some influence that's not our own or determined as right or wrong by us. In some way we think, well, I've got all the answers. No, the Spirit of God has all the answers. And Paul calls us to, to walk by the Spirit, listen to His influence, listen to His power, listen to His, His authority. This is not a magic formula. It's not about some mysterious meaning. It's simply about taking time. And as a child grows up and understands to live under the influence of his parents, and then learns to live under the influence of of other authorities like law, like, like policemen, and, and lives to, to, to live under the influence or the authority of, of a boss. As, as, as we have learned all our lives to constantly live under different influences, He's calling us to learn to live under the influence of the Spirit of God. Now here's the beauty, the promise that goes right alongside that. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He doesn't say you may not. He doesn't say, well, you know, the Spirit's really good, but He can't quite do enough for you, so He's going to screw up every now and then and, and drop the ball. No, He says, you will not. The emphasis is on the will not. You know, it, 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 Paul's not saying, uh, let's, let's make sure we get this straight, Paul's not saying that as you strive to live under the Spirit that you're going to do it perfectly. Paul's not saying that there won't be tension in your life to bounce between legalism and license. Paul's not saying that there won't be times that you commit sin. But it's never the Spirit's fault. The responsibility always comes back to us because we are choosing not to walk by the Spirit, but to walk by the flesh. 
See, it's our responsibility, but Paul promises, the, the, the Scripture promises, God promises that as we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So this is the task of every believer's life from here to the day that Jesus Christ comes back is to learn to live under His influence and authority and to walk in His power. That's the secret to Christian freedom. That's the key to it. That's the reason that we can do it. That's the thing that enables us to this. But as believers, we have a real opportunity to do the wrong thing and choose to do the wrong thing. And as believers, we have the real opportunity to do the right thing for all the wrong reasons, which makes it the wrong thing. But as believers, because of the Spirit of God alive and at work in us, we have the opportunity to do the right thing for the right reasons. We can do this. We can live a successfully free Christian life under God's authority, empowered by God. Not bouncing consistently and constantly between all of these different perspectives. Not constantly being run around by all and tripped up by all that the world has to offer that says, well, it's wrong, it can't be right. See, we have the real opportunity. Because with the Spirit of God in us, we have the opportunity to live influenced completely by Him. And the second part of that, the second part of that phrase, or the second part of, I'm sorry, not that phrase, but that passage that I just read, it shows us the power behind the secret. It shows us, an, it gives us an understanding of, of really why this secret works. It, it, it helps us understand a little further beyond, well, here, this is the statement. Live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, however you want to say it, and you won't gratify the desires of flesh. He didn't leave it there. He, he expounded on it a little bit, and he gives us a fuller understanding of what's behind this secret ingredient to the Christian life. And he tells us that, that the thing that's behind it is that the desires of the flesh don't, they, they, they oppose the desires of the Spirit. But the, the, the desires of the Spirit keep us from doing what we want to do. You see, the first thing we need to understand is desire. As you think about desire, you might think about the things, well, you know, I desire to have a taco for lunch. That's not really true, but I mean, that's things we could desire. Just normal, everyday desires. I'd like one day to have, um, I don't know, I'll tell you, before I had it, I desired my 55-inch television. Now, I know it's, 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 it's over the top. It's bigger than I really need. I could see a TV that's 19 inches, and I could probably be satisfied with that. But I had a desire for this. It's a normal, everyday desire. Now, I don't make the same kind of money, so I would never buy that TV today. But the reality is I was able to then, and it's okay. It's not really bad. But here's what happens with our desires. And this is really what the word refers to. In other translations, it was referred to as lusts, but automatically that puts it in a sexual connotation, and that's not really what the word means. But this word really emphasizes desires that are too big to be proper, to be right. Tim Keller says that they're over-desires. Augustine says that they are inordinate desires. And I think that works really well when you think about the desires as they pertain to our flesh. 
So for example, that 55-inch television, if I had desired it so much that I thought life couldn't go on without it, and I've spent money that was really meant to feed my children, or was should have been given to the church, or money that was was not really mine to spend, and I just blew it like that, and 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 spent it in a way that just because that desire I had to have it, if that had been the desire, then that would have been an inordinate or over desire. It would have been it would have been too strong of a desire. It would have been a misplaced appropriation of desire. It would have been an, a desire that's out of order. But that's what the desires of our flesh are about doing. See, everything goes wrong at this point. The things that we desire and the things that we long for then become the objects of our worship. And as we look at the objects of our desire and we begin to extol them and exalt them to a place of importance in our life, then we turn our eyes from that which should be worshipped, our Creator God, to this thing that shouldn't be worshipped. You see, normal human desire, there's nothing wrong with desiring good things. There's nothing wrong with desiring to have some money in the bank. There's nothing wrong with desiring to, to have lots of friends. And there's nothing wrong with desiring to have a prominent place in your business or your work. There's nothing wrong with those desires as long as they're properly prioritized. But our flesh lifts them up to places where they don't belong. And so, as it pertains to the flesh, then I, sure, they, these are inordinate. They're, they're over-desires. But that same exact word, desire, is used of the Spirit. You see, and I don't think that, this, that the Spirit desires things wrong. In fact, I think His desires are right. And so what I would, I would define this, I would try to explain it more as our primary desires, the things we give time to, the things we give attention to, the things that we give our money to, the things that we give our, our uh, focus and our energy and our efforts and the, and, and the ways that we make decisions. These things reveal the desires of our hearts. Honestly, this is the truth. Open up your checkbook. Well, most of us don't carry checkbooks like that anymore. Look online and look at your check register and look at how you spend your money. It's a difficult exercise, but look at how you spend your money. And consider how you spend your money and what it says about what you desire. It's a real practical, easy way to understand the desires of your flesh. What does God desire? What does the Spirit of God desire? And here's the secret. This is what makes the secret ingredient work, is that when He comes in, His desires oppose our desires. His desires are totally different than the flesh's desires, and it says that, that they oppose one another. Now, as I talked about grace and law, and I tried to illustrate that to you, I, I told you that they were like oil and water, and they just wouldn't mix. But see, this is, it, it doesn't really work for this because ultimately these are not just two ingredients that lay side by side together and no problem. But they literally oppose one another. And so it's more like a war and, and two forces, the opposing forces on different sides of the front and our flesh is on one side of the front just living and striving for its own desires. 
And then there's the Spirit on the other side and it's living and He's leading us to His desires and they oppose one another. And when one takes ground, the other loses it. And when the other takes ground, the other loses it. They don't mix, but they don't just sit side by side. See, one is trying to overtake the other. They're opposing forces. And our responsibility as believers, the call of this passage is to live under the influence of the Spirit so that His desires become our desires. And so what the Holy Spirit of God wants, that we begin to want. And that those desires of the flesh are recognized exactly as that, as desires of the flesh. But He goes on to say, he goes on to say that, that as you live under the, the influence, as you live in this way, as because these things oppose one another, as you live under the influence of the Spirit, He says that it comes in and it changes you and it begins to, 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 to change the way that you act so that you're not going to do what you want to do. It changes the things that go on in your life and the perspectives that you have and the actions that you take and the actions that you make. You see, the idea is simply that He keeps us from doing what we want to do. There's a couple of different perspectives here. I'm just going to share one because we're going to end up... I just need to focus on one. And I think ultimately this is the right one. And the reason I think it is because of the context. In the context, Paul is calling these Galatian people to live under the influence of the Spirit. He's calling them to, to act in line with the Spirit. And he's saying that the Spirit will then keep you from doing what you want to do. I think he's calling them to not give in to the flesh, to not, to, to not act as the flesh would have them to act, but that the Spirit will then enable them or restrain them from acting in that way. You see, he says that, he says, don't give in to your flesh. Walk by the Spirit. The Spirit will influence you. The Spirit opposes the fleshly desires and the Spirit will keep you from doing what you want to do. You see, the thing is about sin is it's actually pleasurable. We can actually enjoy it. it makes us feel good about ourselves. It gives us some, some, some level of satisfaction in, a, in the moment. You know why? You know why porn addiction is such a big thing in our culture today? Because men are satisfied by it. They don't have to do the work of loving their spouse. They don't have to take the time and, and open themselves up and to truly love their spouse. They can simply look at the screen of a computer or look at a video or, or look at a magazine and find some sick satisfaction. It's easy. It's pleasurable. That's sin. But the Spirit gives us restraint. The reason we have secret sins that we don't want others to be to know about, that's partly shame because we know, well, I really shouldn't be doing this. I don't want people to think wrongly of me. I don't want to give the wrong impression. I, and, and, and it's driven by shame, but that's really about us making sure that people think of us in the proper perspective. But the other reason is that we're scared we're going to lose it because we enjoy it. See, if people know about it, then they might hold me accountable. And if they hold me accountable, I've got to give it up. Do you recognize what desire that's living out of? It's a desire of the flesh. 
But the Spirit restrains us as we live under His influence. He restrains us from doing those things that we want to do, that we enjoy doing, that from our past life and that remnant of our old self that still wars against us, He restrains us. This is the power behind the secret ingredient. He influences you and He restrains you. In fact, the very next verse says that when you walk under the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, when you live by the Spirit, you're no longer under the law. You see, there is no need for law when you're walking by the Spirit. There's no need for rules and regulations that restrain you anymore because now the Spirit of God works from you internally to restrain you. Let me, let me help you think of it like this. Let me get you to think of it like this. In the previous verses, he says to us, he says, Paul, Paul writes, he says, do not give opportunity to your flesh, but love one another, serve one another in love. And then he says, for the law is fulfilled in this one command, to love one another. Now, what he's saying is, and we have to be careful, what he's saying is that this doesn't mean that we're not to obey the law. It doesn't mean that we can run around and just do whatever we want to do. But by the Spirit of God in us, He influences us with an internal motive as, to, as opposed to an external motive. Think of it in these terms. People don't murder other people because of laws, right? I mean, really, think about it. I'm not going to ask you to confess this, but I'm, su- I'm, sh- I'm sure, just because I know who we are as people, that you have probably thought, you know, I wish something bad had happened to this person. You know, you've, you probably have been so frustrated with somebody that if the circumstances were just right, you'd be like those little kids that killed their parents because they had been so abused and beaten down. I know it's hard to think of ourselves in that light, and I'm not meaning to, to load you up with this necessarily. I'm just saying that, that truly, in our fallen nature, we really are capable of doing some pretty horrendous things. But the law keeps us from it because we don't want to face the consequences. I'm not going to murder somebody because I don't want to go to jail because I don't think I'd go, I'd, I'm too big a teddy bear. I wouldn't do well in jail. I'd end up somebody's boyfriend and that would be it for me. But you see what that does? That, that, that's a reaction out of fear. I'm afraid of the consequences. It's not changed me a lick. I still long for, for harm. I still want something bad to happen. Now, please understand, this is an illustration. I don't walk around thinking I wish something bad. I'm not throwing darts at people with my eyes. That's not. Hear the illustration. Please understand the illustration. But that is a reaction out of fear driven by an external motive. And when we as believers come to people and we say, you must act this way, we are giving them an external motive with a consequence. And If you don't, I'm going to think less of you. I'm not going to love you. I'm not going to act for your best interest. I'm not going to do this. And so we, we build up these external motives, and or, I mean, I'm sorry, these external influences They're bound up by these consequences that people then react to in fear. Why do we not confess to one another in the church? Because we're afraid to be judged and condemned. Why do we we not live openly in community? 
Because we're scared of how people are going to think of us when they realize how weird we are. I'm the weirdest one. I know it. Look at the church. We're a bunch of weirdos. And that's partly because your preacher is a weirdo. And it's okay. We're, we're fine. It's no problem. I love all you weirdos. And I want you to love me too. But, but you see that we, we don't live this way because we're scared and we're, we're reacting out of fear and we're driven by this external force trying to measure up to something. And that's what the law is. And Paul says you don't need that anymore because now you have the Spirit that comes into your life and changes you internally. You see, no longer do I obey the law because I have to. I obey the law because the Spirit has made me new and I want to. And so I love because the Spirit's made me new and worked it out in me that I can love. I don't murder because I love. I don't condemn because I love. I don't hate because I love. Because this is what the Spirit's doing in my life. But don't mistake it. To, be, to not be under the law doesn't mean that there's not some obedience of the law expected. This is a problem. This is a huge problem. You see, the, the, the law of God certainly given to the, to the Mosaic or to the Israelites was certainly for them in that time, in that place. But don't mistake this. There is a moral law that's written on every person's heart, believer or unbeliever, and that law comes from God. And in the moral law given to the Israelites, we can see it written down on paper. And we can learn from it. And we can recognize, hey, to, to, to be loving is not to murder. To be loving is to be respectful of my parents. To be loving is not to envy. To be loving is not to covet my neighbor's wife. To be loving is not to do these things. And so we begin to understand and gain definition of what it really looks like to love. You see, and then that power then enables us to, to make promises and claims like we heard this morning and we sang this morning. I will go where you'll go. I'll stay where you'll stay. You're only ever going to be able to do that well and for the right reasons because you're living under the influence of the Spirit and you are living by the power of the Spirit changing your life and making you new. You see, how? <laughs> That's our questions. Let me get down to them so I can make sure that I'm in the right place. How can we successfully live in Christian biblical freedom? By walking by the Spirit, allowing His influence to direct our lives, submitting or yielding to His authority. And I'm going to tell you, that doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. How is this different from life as we know it outside of Christ? Because outside of Christ, all we have is the external. But in Christ, we have the Spirit inside of us making us new. See, it's not about, the power is not in our choice. It's not in our choice to do the right thing. It's not in our choice to submit to Him. It's not in our, in our power or in our effort, but rather in God's Spirit. It's by His power that this all comes together. Certainly, you are responsible to live under His influence. But make no mistake, as you strive to do that, He does this work. Well, and that begs the third question. How then can I know if it's really working or not? 
How, how can I know that I'm not living with false motives? How can I know that God's really at work in me? How can I know this? Well, well, first, I just want to tell you, I'm encouraged, especially in these first three verses, for two reasons. Because these new desires and this influence wouldn't even be in me if I wasn't saved. And the promise of God is that He finishes what He starts. I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged because as I begin to recognize the influence of God in my life, I can see all the things that he's done over a period of time. You see, this thing, this, this thing that happens in us, I told you it's not like it doesn't happen overnight. It's kind of like a kid that's growing up. You can look at a kid every day and not really see them grow, not really see them get bigger. You can recognize it as it, as, as it happens. Oh, man, all of a sudden you're, I'm looking you eye to eye. It just seemed like just a few days ago I was patting you on the head. But you don't see the incremental growth. You, you see large, you see large change for sure. And this is the thing is that this is encouraging to me because I recognize as I learn to live under this influence that I should be able to look over my life after a period of time and see how much God has grown me. That's encouraging. But to really know to really be able to measure that and have some substantial way to say, well, this is what he's done in me. See, Paul gives us the, gives us the answer for that in the verses that follow. He says in verse 19, <clears throat> the works, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage or fits of anger. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Now, I'm not going to define every one of these. I do want to call particular attention to just a couple, just because I, I, I want to give some explanation of the word. In, in the word um, sensuality, or, I'm sorry, sorcery, that word is really, uh, it's, it's in the Greek, it's pharmakeia, I think, pharmakeia, I think is the right way to say it. And, and that's where we get the word pharmacy. And so all of a sudden you think, oh, drugs. Well, that's what it's referring to. It doesn't mean go home and throw out the pills you got from Walgreens. That's not what I'm saying. Don't hear it. Come on. It's not. This is drugs that are mind-altering, puts you in a different mood. They're used, this word really in that time was used to describe what went on in witchcraft in the midst of, in, in the midst of pagan religious practice. And so maybe, maybe you would think of it in terms of peyote, you know. I mean, these Indians get in these steam houses and smoke on their peyote so that they can have a religious experience. It would be similar to that. I know some of you are going to have to go home and throw away your peyote, and I'm sorry for that, but that is true. That's a drug, and that's referring to that kind of drug. Those are works of the flesh. I mean, come on, really, that that's, doesn't look good. You know, we don't we don't want to be known by these things, but I'm going to tell you, I believe if you're honest with yourself, you'll be able to pinpoint some that you struggled with in your life. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, I, and these, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I've, I've dealt with these. I, I've recognized them. I've pinpointed them in my life. Sorcery, if you think of it in terms of just mind-altering drugs. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. Man, orgies. Now that word orgies is really uh, could be translated also revelries. And what, it, what he's referring to is parties that happen because you've induced yourself in some um, drug-induced state. Kind of goes along with drunkenness. So, I mean, you think in college and you think about what goes on in college today and they get drunk and they have orgies. There you go. I mean, that makes sense, right? I, I will say I've not been involved in that kind of orgy, but I, 
sexual immorality pins me to the wall anyway, so it doesn't matter. But the reality is I've been part of all kinds of parties that have been on nothing but drunk fests. All we, in fact, there's a reason I drank for the most, most of my life. As I drank, I drank simply to get drunk because I had things that I was tired of dealing with. And I didn't want to deal with them. So I did two things. I watched a lot of movies so I could think about somebody else's life and I could watch it go for good for somebody at least. And I got drunk. I watched movies when my kids were around and when they weren't. I got drunk. And everything was great until I was laying in bed in the middle of the night and I was still and quiet and sober. And the Spirit of God was doing everything He could. His influence was opposing the desires of my flesh. And it was making me empty and miserable because I wanted so desperately to, to live in the desires of my flesh because I wanted so desperately for Him to be silent. But I thank Him that He wasn't. That is our sinful flesh. And those works, I want you to notice this, those works are the direct result of the desires of your flesh. Those works happen because we desire things wrongly. We desire them out of order. They're, they are, they are misplaced appropriations. They're, they're misplaced priorities. And those desires may not necessarily be bad desires. But when it all comes down to it, our, des- our, our flesh desires things like our, our flesh desires to be its own God. We so desperately want to be in control of our lives. This is a control issue. We so desperately want to be in control of our lives that our flesh dr- drums up this idea that we have all the answers and we don't need anyone else and that we can live independent of anyone else. And I am in control. Man, that leads us to those 15 words that Paul used. Oh yeah, by the way, he says at the end, and the like. And so this isn't an exhaustive list. This is just what some of it looks like. The reality is, and like in Romans 1, he says in the middle of that list, or at the end of that list, he says, they even made up evil things to do as they lived out of their flesh. So, I mean, that's, that's really who we are. See, our, our flesh, so it desires to be its own God because we want control. Our flesh desires to be worshipped as God because we want to be approved. It's not wrong to want friends and to be liked. It's not wrong to have a lot of friends. It's not wrong to be influential. It's not wrong. We, we desire relationship with one another. That's a God-given desire. But our flesh puts it at top. And all of a sudden, we want to be worshipped as God. We want people's approval. We want the pat on the back. We want people to notice us. I mean, why are birthdays such a big deal? And why are our feelings hurt so badly if somebody doesn't notice our birthday? Because we want to be approved of it. I'm not saying it's wrong to celebrate your birthday. I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you that. I'm saying we make it a bigger deal than it really needs to be because we want to be approved by people. And that leads to these works of the flesh. Our flesh desires to rule as God. This is a power issue. And some people are driven for this desire to be over others, to tell others what to do, to be in charge of others. Whatever it does for them, whatever satisfaction they find in it, the reality is is that that is a desire for power. 
and making power the first and most important primary desire of your life. And it leads to works of the flesh. Our flesh desires to live as God. And this is about comfort. God is independent. God is in control. He has all He wants. He needs nothing. And our flesh thinks we should be that way too. You think we read the Bible and we find places where it talks about people being prospered in the by God and and that they received financial wealth and blessing and financial blessing from God and all of a sudden we think well that's what it means to be blessed by God and then I can have all I want and we take verses out of context that say delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart and we think oh that means if I if I delight myself in God then I get a big bank account and I get a nice car and I get a big house and I get all this stuff, and it's going to make me so happy. Well, we, we totally misunderstand that. When God is the desire of our heart, the primary desire of our heart, we receive the desire of our heart, but our flesh twists it. And all of a sudden, we have standards we have to live by. I have to have an iPhone. I have to have an iPad. And please hear me, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching from an iPad. It's not bad. It's not wrong. It's not sin. It's when it's an over-desire. It's when it's a misappropriated desire that this becomes sinful and leads to works of the flesh. You see, that's the, that, that's what our flesh desires, but, but thankfully the Spirit opposes it and the Spirit will keep us from living out of those desires. How can we know that we're finding this to be true? How can we see it happening? He goes on to say, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit I want you to see this is stark contrast. Paul's done this all the way through Galatians. All the way through Galatians, he's shown one thing and then shown a stark contrast. And he's shown over and over, he's juxtaposed two positions. He's, he's compared two positions and showed the differences. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. And self-control. Against such things there is no law. Remember, there's no law against these things because the internal working of the Spirit, you don't, you no longer need the external rule to tell you to live that way. The Spirit empowers you and influences you to live that way. And see, and here's the differences. I, 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 we're not going to define all these. I'm, I'm going to make sure that if you're in a community group, that's going to be part of what we're going to discuss in our community groups this week. Is we're going to really kind of define these things and talk about them in our own lives. But I definitely, I believe primarily Paul was demonstrating the differences and he wanted these Galatians to see the differences and I think as we recognize the differences, we'll be able to answer our question. Notice the difference. Notice how desperately different these are. Even in the way that he names the lists. One, he calls works of the flesh. One, he calls fruits of the Spirit. One, we can do on our own. But one, we need this, the, the Spirit to bear in us, to do in us. An apple tree really has no, no other thing that it can do than bear apples. That's what they do. That's why we like them. It, we probably wouldn't like apple trees so much and eat so many apples if they gave us lemons. We'd put them in tea. I mean, really. That would be a totally different thing. The Spirit does this in us. He, he bears it out in us. He makes it happen in us. And see, it focuses on the outcome or the result of God's work as opposed to the 
to the result of our desires. See, the fruit of the Spirit what we need to remember, you know, the fruit of the, the work of the flesh is a direct result of the desires of our flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit is a direct result of the Spirit's desire and influence in our lives. That's what the fruit is. The Spirit works in you, boom, there's work done and it shows. Another difference I would like you to, I think we ought to notice is that the first displays actual physical works like things outside of us. But the fruits of the Spirit talks about what goes on inside of us. They're more motivational. They're more foundational, attitude-driven. I have an attitude or motivation of love. I have an attitude or motivation of joy and peace. I live out of these things. I, I enjoy these things. And when I enjoy them, I act differently. I mean, even he talks about faithfulness. The, the word really is faith, and, and they, they, they interpret it as faithfulness. But really, this is, the, this is the ability that God works in us, not just to have faith, but to continue in faith. To actually commit to something. To actually stand firm in something. To actually persevere in something. And you see, it all starts as a direct result of the desires of the Spirit. But, but he doesn't tell us what it looks like on the outside. He tells us what it looks like on the inside. Because then as we walk by the Spirit, how do you think that looks differently on the outside? I mean, how different is a church that lives influenced completely by the Spirit than, than, a, than a people who's not? We are going to strive for community because we really love one another. It's no longer about protecting myself. It's about extending a hand of sacrificial love, the love that Jesus loved me with. We're going to be a joyous people, not based on the circumstances of our life or the struggles that we face we're going to find joy and satisfaction in the, in the trust and faith that we have in God. We're going to be happy because we know He's got our back. We're going to know peace because no matter how far the world falls around us, we know that we're in His hand. You see, that's the work the Spirit does in us. And see, the Spirit of God desires God to be recognized as God. The Spirit of God desires Jesus and the Father to be worshipped. The Spirit of God desires us to recognize the sovereign rule of God. The Spirit of God desires us to live under the blessing of God. And then it begins as, as we live under this influence, as we live influenced by His desires. The fruits of His work begin to show in us. And we don't need a law anymore. We'll obey the law, but not because it's externally given to us, but because it's internally drummed up and empowered by the Spirit in us. You see? And, and how will you know? How will you know? He keeps going. He says, he says, and those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, how will we know if it's working or not? See, we're, never, we're, we're no longer going to live by the works of the flesh. We're no, no longer going to look back over the course of our life and think, I wanted this and this and this and this and this and this and this is what I've got. I've lived by all my desires and I still am empty and I'm still longing for something and I still want more. And see, our lives will no longer be marked by that. Instead, we're going to see the fruit of the Spirit increasing in us. 
And, and, and note this. This isn't something that we turn around and say, oh man, I gotta go home and I gotta start working on being more loving. I, I, you know, I mean, when I was in the army, they told us, if you want to be good at push-ups, you do push-ups. If you want to, if you want to be able to run far, run, run. Get up and run. This is what I'm telling you. If you want to see the fruits of the Spirit born out in you, live by the desires of the Spirit. Want Jesus more. Look at Jesus more. Spend more time contemplating and praying to Jesus. Influenced by the Spirit bears out the fruit of the Spirit. And here's what will happen. You won't have to get up and go home and work on being good and being a morally upright person. You won't have to get up and go home and work on being more loving and, and being joyful and being at peace and, and worrying less. And every one of those things, every one of those things represents some way that you're living out of the flesh. But instead, you'll know it's working when you see yourself becoming more loving. Loving like Jesus was loving. You'll know that it's working when you begin are able to recognize, I used to be worried all the time, but I'm not worried anymore. You'll be able to see it working when all of a sudden you can look back in your life and you can see a time of sexual immorality and you've been moved to a place of sexual purity. Because you're no longer using people for what you can gain from them. You are loving them sacrificially and giving up what you want. You'll know it's working because the fruit of the Spirit will be born out in you and it will continue to increase. And that's what he's saying when he says that we crucify our flesh, that basically we are able to then begin to just put it to death. That no longer do we need it. No longer do those desires matter because we have this spiritual influence in our life that's making us all better. See, I think one of the ways we'll know if it's working is that we will begin to actually be able to distinguish between the two. I think one of the biggest problems that our church faces, not our church, the, the, the church as a large, the, especially I think in probably in North America, I think that we don't distinguish between these two very well. And we are too easily swayed by, by false motives. I was confronted with this just this week. Man, I was hammered. I sat down in the, in, in the oversight elder meeting with two guys from, um, well, one's from Ozark and one's from Joplin, Lane and Steve. I've, I've talked about them before. And I was shown how I was living out of fear. They didn't have to say that to me. The Spirit showed it to me. They were confronting me and I was pushing and I was fighting back and I was trying to give excuses. I was trying to, trying to provide for them why I thought I was right. And then it suddenly struck me. I am afraid. That's work of the flesh. But you know why I can see a difference between the two? Because the work of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. And I think that as we grow and as we mature, we will know that it's working. We will know that God is at work in us because we will actually be able to distinguish between these two positions. How are we ever going to live a successful Christian life, live under the influence of the Spirit? How is that different than being outside of Christ? People outside of Christ don't have the hope of the Spirit. They don't have the internal indwelling Spirit of God changing them from the inside out. All they have is external motivations with consequences. How will we know it's working? 
you spend enough time striving to live under this influence and you will begin to see his work in you. It's a beautiful passage. I I love that it gives us an answer, but it does leave us with one responsibility. If we are alive by the Spirit, it actually this this actually refers all the way back to the beginning of chapter three, where he says, "Did were you given the Spirit by faith or by works?" If you are alive by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. Our responsibility is not to go home and do all we can to be good. Our responsibility is to get up from here and go and live under the influence and authority of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, You are good, You are gracious, You are holy and loving. We thank You for Your work. We thank You, God, for Your Son, Jesus Christ, who has saved us. God, I thank you that you didn't just save us for the moment, but that you are actually enabling us to live as saved people. You're not just, excuse me, you're not just giving us a command that tells us to live in a certain way, but that you are empowering us to live a life that honors you. God, I am so grateful for that because I recognize my own life. I recognize my own failures and I recognize what happens when I bear down to do the good thing. And I recognize that even those good desires then, then end up leading me to, to the works of the flesh. And I am I'm grateful, God. I'm grateful for Your grace that You don't count those sins against me. But I am grateful for the truth that You have empowered me to live in a way that honors You. And I'm grateful that that is true for this church as well. Father, I thank You. I pray. I just pray, God, that you, would, that you would put the pressure where it needs to be in our lives, that you would give us the hope that we need, the courage that we need to, to put down those desires of the flesh, to live under the influence of the Spirit. I pray that you would just give us the, the boldness to be the people you've called us to be as we live under the influence of your Holy Spirit. We love you and we thank you. And so all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.